Hasbro. Hasbro makes toys. What's new, Hasbro? Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head with their own cars and trailers. That's what's new. See, Mr. Potato Head has a car and boat trailer. And there's a car and shopping trailer for his wife, Mrs. Potato Head. It's such fun to do and so easy. Like this. Take any fruit or vegetable. Just stick in eyes, then ears, and then the mouth. You can make the funniest looking people in the whole world. Potato Head people look different every time you make them. Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head with cars and trailers come in one and two dollar sizes. Can you succeed fast? Now, there's a ton of attention paid to failing fast these days. A quick Google search for failing fast finds more than 151,000 results. A similar search on succeeding fast, by the way, reveals about 10% of that or about 15,000 total results. And it sounds wrong, doesn't it? Succeeding fast. Almost as if that's cheating, right? Failing fast is supposed to be expected. Succeeding fast goes against everything we feel. No pain, no gain. There is no elevator to success. you got to take the stairs. Success doesn't happen overnight. Success hurts. It takes dedication and time. All those kinds of mantras that we have burned into our brain that just make success feel hard. But what about when it isn't? What about succeeding the very first time we try? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, you know what we do? For others that we see, we chalk it up to luck. That entrepreneur who took 20 years to succeed, well, she worked at it, paid her dues. The entrepreneur who built their first company in four years, well, she got lucky. So why do we fail so often at processing success? Well, we make the same errors, it turns out, as when we see it in others, but sometimes it's the opposite observation. When we succeed, we make what psychologists call fundamental attribution errors. We confidently identify ourselves, or we confidently say we're in the right place at the right time, or we chalk it up to just being lucky. Whatever the attribution is, our conclusion is that it's not worth analyzing because we're unlikely to ever duplicate that lightning in a bottle thing again. This is the failure to ask why syndrome. It basically means that when we succeed, we don't ask the tough questions in analyzing a win versus a loss, mostly because we're afraid of uncovering something that quite simply can't be replicated. So that next time you have that quick win, the one that feels like you got away with something, why not do a postnatal analysis? We love doing the postmortems, so why don't we do something postnatal as well? Because every time we do something great, well, that's worth figuring out, too. And that's the theme of our show today, looking at what didn't work, but also looking at what did, failing fast and succeeding fast. Bill Gates once said, it's fine to celebrate success, but it's more important to heed the lessons of failure. I think that's fine, but I would counter that it's fine to focus on failing fast, but it's just as important to heed the lessons of success. Now it's time for me to get our little hour of success going, and you ready to succeed fast? Well, then, let's roll.
And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 175 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, March 20th, 2017. And with me, as always, is my co-host, my colleague, my friend, and the fastest, biggest success in content marketing that I've ever known, Mr. Joe Pulitzi. How are you, my friend? Oh, that's so sweet. You know what I was going to ask you? Is there, What's that? Is there like an occasion for 175? You know, like I, you know, it was funny when I was putting together the show notes um, for 175. I thought, wow, that's kind of an interesting round number that absolutely means, you know, when you divide it by 12, you know, or 36, or you know, however, you know, 36 plus, you know, months that we've been doing this now. Um, no, there isn't, there isn't any. There's <laughs> nothing special at all. I didn't about know if it was like plutonium or I don't know. Yeah, know, like what's I, the I what's the metal? Of ones. Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking we got to do something for 200, 200 because that just feels like I remember when we were when we were doing when we were on episode like 75 or 76 or something. And we were like, oh, we're soon we'll get to episode 200. And it felt like a million miles away. <laughs> like, and it's never going like, to get it. It's like, holy moly, we're going to hit that this year. And so it's that's pretty amazing. Well, you know, here's here's what we could do when when Ohio, the state of Ohio hit their 200th anniversary as a as a state. It was 1803 to 2003. Uh, yeah. what they, they did, uh, they painted the state on the side of many barns around Ohio. So okay. maybe we could do something like that. We could paint, paint the PNR, PNR logo, logo on, on the side all of the barns of, in Ohio, <laughs> <laughs> which I sounds like a lot of work. It does sound like a lot of work, but it's an idea. I mean, it's, it, it, it is an idea there. I, I will grant you that that is definitely an idea. Maybe somebody in our audience could come up with something because it's not that <laughs> far away. 25 weeks will be yeah. here. I mean, it's basically Soon. six months, but I mean, yeah, it, well, it, you know, it's still going to hey, be in this calendar it, it, year. It's going it, to, it's going to ride right around the CM world time. I think I haven't done the math on it, Ooh, but that's going to be gonna really come right close. around that time. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be really close because we have a lot of things going on because we'll have the book coming out. We'll have Content Marketing World. Yep, we'll have right. 200 for this one. Oh, my goodness. It's going to be a jubilee. That's 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 hard. to As the Black Crows would say, that's hard to handle. <laughs> handle now. Handle now. Oh, no. Oh, no. Do you know? Okay, a little other side up. So when I left, because I was never getting any playing time when I was in JV basketball, and I left and, <laughs> and we started a CYO basketball team, we named the right. team the Black Crows. So that was... Did you really? Yeah, absolutely. Because you were too hard to handle now? I was, handle the, head, now? I was the head <laughs> Black Crow of, uh, of the... It was, it was super fun, because we took all, the, all of my friends... Also, were the ones that tried out for the team, and we were no good. <clears throat> so we all said, "Hey, well, let's just." And then we were like an okay CYO team. So there you go. Okay, so, totally. Right. I don't totally. even know what CYO means. What oh, is CYO. Um, it, uh, it's Create Cath your own. <laughs> yeah, pretty much Catholic youth youth <laughs> organization. So, oh, okay. Uh, and basically, gotcha. that's so. My son Adam plays basketball. He doesn't play in the school necessarily. He plays in the CY in CYO, and you can technically play with other kids that go to other Catholic schools. 
So, huh. oh, that's and again, it's other Catholic schools as well. So, and that's what I coached this year. So I coached, I was a CYO coach. I did see that on Facebook that you were coaching, you were coaching one of the games and you, and you, uh, and you shot a basket or something like that, if I remember right. Oh, so that was, video. that was the, yeah, that was the coaches versus the eighth graders. So that was, okay. That was fun. Cause this year I got to play last year uh, the, as a coach, I played against my oldest Joshua, who's in the eighth grade. And this year it was Adam. So next year I will not be playing in that event because did you win? Did the coaches win? No, 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 no. We got yelled at cause we made it too close last year. So this this year we definitely took a dive. And oh my god, I have wonderful. this I have this total I have this total like Will Ferrell sort of vision of a movie in my head of you stiff arming little eighth graders and putting so, them on their butts. So la- I, last year was my first year playing. I gotta tell you, I took it a little bit too seriously, and I come off the court thinking. Yeah. Oh my God, this, like, that was fantastic. And, and my wife is just shaking her head at me like, what is wrong with you? Like, do you, do you get pleasure out of, out of beating these eighth graders into submission? You're yelling at eighth graders, not in my house. <laughs> oh, I was, oh, we should probably go on to the show, but we could do a whole yes, show on CYO basketball if you'd like at some point. Cause I actually had to get special training to do that. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think yeah. I'm good. I think okay. I think I'm good. <laughs> do we have any uh, any news? We do have some news. We absolutely do have some news and some fun stuff to talk about here for sure. Um, we're going to pair the first two articles together because they just they they pair so nicely Tasty. together yeah. um, with a nice fine wine here. Um, they are both on native advertising, and the first article that we'll link to in the show notes that we're pairing comes from MediaLifeMagazine.com, and it's called "Native Advertising Doesn't Work." Um, The article opens up by saying, there's no denying people are interested in native advertising. On sites from Yahoo to the New York Times, this form of digital advertising has seen big gains in spending over the last few years. And study after study finds that advertisers are eager to try it out. But once they've had a taste of native, many of them aren't so gung-ho on going back. Native advertising has low renewal rates, which means publishers either aren't executing it as well or advertising aren't seeing the return they'd hoped for. The next article that we'll uh, pair here, just because it's on the absolute opposite end of the spectrum and cites the exact same uh, research, comes from AdAge. And that is native advertising content yielding big returns for publishers. Brands that want to run a successful native ad campaign might have to pay as much as $450,000 for a six-month run. But that might be a bargain, as marketers who cough up the cash are happy enough that they return at a rate significantly higher than the industry norm. According to Media Radar, by the way, the same research that was cited in the previous article, a sales intelligence company, publishers are seeing an average renewal rate of 33% for native ad products when campaigns run for less than six months. But news outlets like the Wall Street Journal, for example, see renewal rates of 72%. So the big headline in the previous article, Joe, was, of course, that 60% of people aren't coming back. Um, on average, and then the the one from the ad age is, of course, saying that 33% are coming back. So I just found this fascinating that two articles could come to completely different. I mean, I don't know why I should find it fascinating in today's news environment that this be the case. But what did you? I mean, I have a take on this, but I want to get your take. Well, on this I, first yeah, I have a, I have a couple takes. I, I'm curious. Yeah. First of all, curious as to the return rate for just advertising. 
I looked it up, and I can't find it. I, I cannot, and, and this goes to my rant a little later in the show, but I, I absolutely, I did l- look for it and can't find anybody that, because, that yeah, has because cited it, it recently. It could be very similar. It could be just advertising when people go, I mean, correct? Uh, yeah, exactly. So we're, we're jumping, we're <laughs> like, uh, we jump, what was the game? We're jumping to o- conclusions that, yeah, that 30% is bad. Yeah, we have to, <laughs> right. what, the game in Office Space, right? We're jumping to conclusions. I don't know why I just thought of that. Um, <laughs> the guy that got hit, that got hit yeah. by the truck. Um, so that was the one thing I was just like, versus what? And I think the second thing we have to make clear is that, When you talk about native advertising and sponsored content, a lot of people are using this as the same. And in in the one article, they definitely use it as different. Uh, Actually, the CEO from Media Radar brings that out. But I I think that in a lot of cases, publishers, when they think of native advertising, because native advertising from a publisher is generally running sponsored content opportunities. Right. That's right. So uh, it's. I just wanted to throw that out there where I think people can get confused when they really just mean the same things. All right. So the, the, my take on this is there are, there are two problems, and we've talked about this on this pod, podcast incessantly. One is publishers who are desperate for revenue in most cases, who are experimenting with native advertising and sponsored content, they generally sell, are selling very short programs. And they aren't a one-time program here, tested out here because they're newer. So they're not going and pitching and saying, look, just like any advertising, you have to run this consistently over time. Or just like any content marketing program, right? You have to run it consistently over time to a specific audience around something that makes sense for the, the publisher's brand as well as your brand. So that's not being done. And the second thing is... uh the advertisers here have no patience at all. And I think they're expecting, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they're expecting the return that you'd get off of a demand gen program. They're expecting to see yeah. things like leads and business generated immediately. Well, you hope so. You hope so, right? I mean, what they're probably mostly expecting is traffic. Well, that you so... Yes, I mean that's the number one thing they're probably looking for is some low level vanity type metrics of, exactly. of social that's shares right. and traffic. That's right, and their engagement not, and engagement, whatever, <laughs> <laughs> whatever that means. Um, yes. But I, you know, I think the other thing is, and I, I just brought it up, but I think it's important to talk about, especially for those people uh, considering doing any kind of sponsored content. It it does take some time, and they mentioned this, and I think in the, the first article, the what is it, the media briefing article? Media life article. Um, yeah. If, if you, your uh, content tilts, if you will, your differentiation, the thing that you're going to talk about from a, in a content, in an editorial fashion, and the mission of the brand, the publisher's brand, it takes time to find that. You're not just going to get that right the first time. You're, you're probably going to get some feedback. Did it work? Did it not work? Does that make sense? Uh, there's some pushback because the brand can't talk about certain things and the publisher doesn't want certain things talked about. So those things have to – it's it's a lot harder than just an advertising placement where you can do anything. And if you're just only going to do this one or two times, you don't get any chance to work it out. You might as well not even do it. If you're going to do it one, two times, three times, don't do it. I mean, you actually have to work through the experiment to get the feedback, then then you can create some quality content that your audience actually wants to get. I think that's exactly right. I think you know the the the, the, 
I think they're both wrong, by the way. Oh, that's both articles fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Good. I think, you know, and I, I don't think they're wrong in the in the in the in the facts that they present, you know, from the research, because that's just the way it is. Right. I, I think their interpretation of it um, in in both cases um, is wrong, um, because in the one case, the Media Life magazine where they're basically saying it's low renewal rates, which means the publishers aren't executing it as well as they could, or advertisers aren't seeing the returns they hope for. Sure, that's but the the reason why, because um, I think you're right on. Basically, the uh, the that that brands aren't investing in this um, for the long haul, and I think that's just speaks to the newness of this, right? Yeah. They, the, this right now for most brands is considered such an experimental thing, right? Um, they're looking at this, you know, I, I can tell you having worked with these brands that there's chaos right now in, in most media buying organizations within the brand to say, does this, you know, does this function belong in PR? You know, is this really earned media that we're paying a spot? You know, because normally this would have been earned media, right? Getting an article covered on something that we want covered, whether we write it or not, this is we're hoping to get earn our way into that placement in one of these publications. Well, now we can buy our way in. And so the PR people are saying this is a really interesting public relations opportunity, corporate communications opportunity. And the demand gen people are saying, hey, this is a really interesting demand generation or brand marketing or, you know, just, you know, regular um, product marketing opportunity. And so they're starting. And so there's a lot of toes getting stepped on right now in terms of who's actually in charge with establishing a relationship with the publisher here. And and I can tell you also from the publisher side, this is causing some a little bit of agita as well because they're getting calls. You know, they're getting two different calls, right? They're you know they're getting calls from PR and they're getting calls from um, the demand generation agencies who are placing these ads for them, and it's it's a bit of a mess right now. So I think some of that renewal chaos can be chalked up to that. Well, to, but the second side of that, what's that? Real quick on that one, it's a great point. Just think about it this way. You are an editor. You're getting your pitch like you normally do, an editor gets. And now the editor, instead of just filing it to the side or actually covering it, they're saying, look, we're not going to cover this, but we might be, but we might, uh, be able to – you may right. be able to buy your way. Can I transfer you over to Charlie yes. who can sell you a spot? Exactly. Right? You know, that never happened yeah. 10 years ago. Now it happens all the right. time. So I'm sorry to interrupt exactly. you. But yes, go ahead. No, no, not at all. And Because that's exactly it, right? And now – that can be something that is affecting those renewal rates. The thing that I, on the other side, the more positive side that I would point to is when I read that Ad Age article, and they've got a chart in there basically with all the ones that are over 60% renewal rates um, in 2016, by the way. So it's January through December of 2016. They, they show the data there, and it says the, the top ones – are Wall Street Journal, 73%, New York Times, 71%, Quartz, 69%, Deadspin, 66%, Washington Post, Atlantic, CIO, Fitness, Politico, Outside, and Wired. And the thing that all of them have in common are very strong brands. That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> very strong media brands. And so I know also for a fact that many times when these brand marketers, demand gen marketers, and PR people are wanting to place these native ads – the brand has an incredibly important uh, role to play here. You know, if I can get an article into the Wall Street Journal and I can show that to my boss, whether or not I paid or not to get it in there, that's a good thing. And so getting an article in the, you know, in the New York Times or in the Washington Post or in the Atlantic, 
I get the little bit of the halo of that brand. That's why we've talked about forever the importance of for media companies these days to have such a strong brand and why you very rightly have said you've got to be, if you're a publisher, you've got to very, very carefully go into this whole native advertising thing because it affects your brand. And so I think some of the renewal rates here like I would, I would be interested to know uh, for Wall Street Journal, for example, on that seventy-three percent, what percentage of the twenty-seven percent who didn't renew was basically a a, a decision by the oh, Wall that's Street a, Journal? That's, that is a awesome question because that, to that you renew. have to, because it's different than advertising, right? You exactly. except you know Wall Street Journal is only going to take a certain kind. I mean, there are certain kinds of advertising Wall Street Journal doesn't accept. It's a very small, limited, yes. you know, because it costs a lot. They they will not accept from a sponsored content standpoint a lot more people. And if you're terrible to work with as a client, they will absolutely fire you. That's exactly right. And so, you know, when I look at those brands there, I look at those brands as as, as media companies that are very carefully managing what they do in this space, as well as sort of just generally speaking about the content that they provide to their audience. And I could very easily see some ornery, you know, brand um, basically getting up in their face about trying to run something that they didn't want to run. And they go, you know what, we're just going to get through this project, but we never want you again, right? And so those renewal rates could be affected from that as well. So I think, you know, now, are those the primary reasons? I don't know. What I do know is that this is new and that I think the Media Life magazine, where it's saying basically it doesn't work, is 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 way overstating that. I think they're way overstating that, um, you know, because and you know, look, I think native has its place for sure, has its place. Now, I think most brands are doing it wrong. To just to our discussion about the vanity metrics and all that stuff, most brands are are not doing this as part of an integrated approach to content to pull that audience into their owned media experiences and yada, 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 everything we talk about content marketing and stuff. But I also think on the other side, the Ad Age article, that the overwhelming sort of renewal stuff here, I think a lot of that is coming from the brand side. And quite frankly, the ones that are sort of continuously renewing here, the 73, the 71, the 69%, these are budgets where this native ad piece is quite literally a drop yeah. in the bucket for their overall media budget. So this is this is nothing that is not just the top of the top of, of, of advertising spenders saying, hey, let's just throw some money at this for a while and see if it works. I think the point that I'll take away from what you said is it's way <clears throat> it's way too early in the process. For most it, of these. Correct. And, and exactly. if you look at what New York Times, Wall Street Journal, the ones at the top of this list, they started this a long time ago and they've worked it out to the, now they have a very specific offering. They don't allow like New York Times. It, it, this is their sponsored content offering is is packaged up like this. And if you don't like it, sorry, that's how yeah, they do it. And they exactly take right. the lead on it and they run it and it, it they really bend to what they think will work editorially instead of the brand coming in and saying, oh, this is what we want to run on the, on the New York Times, which I think is a better model, uh, especially for the New yeah. York Times. And for actually most of these people on the list, they are the, the, the publishing brand is leading uh, the, the, the brand, the, um, the paid, the product service brand in ways that will help them tell their story better and also help the, you know, and also not damage the brands of the Wall <laughs> Street Journal, the New York Times, which is critical because a salesperson will sell anything. Yeah. 
Well, exactly right. So you have to have <laughs> exactly that's why you right. ha- that's why by exactly the way it's right. tough for a sales for the sales team to lead this effort because you need somebody on the other side that's protecting that brand, that brand director, brand leader, whatever that decision if it's an editor editor or not uh, because they're the ones that have to say no at some point. Oh yeah, I had I talked to one publisher, you're going to love this. I talked to one publisher at a conference recently where they they were making native ads the make goods um, oh, God. for other for other digital stuff and it was like are you joking me i mean i mean come on that is somebody approved that and i was like that person should be taken out into the woodshed and spanked because that is not good like you know because <clears throat> for anybody who has any history and i joe i know you know this like in, in publishing the whole idea of digital at all as make goods was what you know, one of the main things that ruined digital for so many and what media started companies, digital make, for most media companies, by the way, it exactly. just became value and, add. Yeah, yeah, and so to make to make native advertising value add, holy smokes, you know, just watch the content quality start to degrade very, very quickly. This so, is that's by the way, know. that's a great point. That's the reason why a lot of these publishers are where they are because they, of course, they were very strong print brands and they started this thing online and they were like, how do we monetize it? Well, let's just get some of our print advertisers and we'll we'll package in a, a a bigger print program and we'll throw in some of these free digital things that we don't know how to sell yet. Yep. That's how it started. Yeah. So they digitized print basically instead of looking at how digital was a completely new medium. And that's the that's the challenge there for sure. Sad. All right. Shall we move let's on to it. our next uh, sure. All right. So let's um uh, so the next story that we have for the show is a really interesting one. It's is a um, it comes from CMOSurvey.org, which is a, a survey that has been done for a long time, um, and uh, the new uh, version is out. Um, and we'll link to both the survey as well as the article that we'll talk about here in just a second. Um, and the article, the blog post that sort of announces the uh, research, toss starts out by saying spending on marketing analytics, quantitative data about customer behavior and marketplace activity is expected to leap from 4.6% to almost 22% of marketing budgets in the next three years, representing a 376% increase. At the same time, marketers say barely a third of available data are used to drive decision-making in their companies. These are among the latest findings from the CMO survey conducted biannually since August of 2008 and sponsored by the American Marketing Association, Deloitte, and Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. The CMO survey is is the longest-running survey dedicated to understanding the field of marketing. I'm, I'm not sure that's right, but okay. The latest edition received responses from 388 top marketing executives. Um, did you have any main takeaways from, from, from this? I certainly have a few. I wanted to get <clears> well, I know thoughts you, on it. Yeah, I know you have a few, and I definitely don't want to steal your thunder on that. The first thing I would say okay. is I have no comments on the marketing analytics part of the study. So if you do, that yes. good for you. Uh, because I, did, I didn't think that was right. the story. A couple things that I picked out of. No, exactly. I, I agree with that 100%. It's not that they they definitely were desperately looking for something like, to and like about. This whole, whatever, 52-page study, and that's what they got yeah. out of it? I mean, exactly. come on. Okay, anyways. So the, this, these are a couple things, is, and I did go through the whole study, and here's the things that I thought were super interesting. I've never, I've seen this study a few times over the years. I've never seen optimism so high. 
These are yes. very oh, optimistic marketers. And marketers tend to yes. be curmudgeons. Uh, when it's like, uh, you know, this is, uh, we need more budget. Uh, my, you know, my, yeah. nobody respects marketing my organization. Those still things still may be true, but this survey says they're pretty optimistic about literally everything, uh, going on. So I don't know if that's, uh, usually if you're looking in the financial world and everybody's really optimistic, that's when we're going to see a huge bear rally and things are going to drop. <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> we should be really concerned. That, that CMOs are pretty positive <laughs> that everybody's because, feeling so good about themselves. Because, because next year, we're all going to be bankrupt. Just so you know, that's how oh, it usually dear. works. I thought that that was interesting. Uh, there is an incredible amount of focus on, we know this has always been the case, and I hate it, uh, so much more on acquisition than retention. So if you look yes. at inside the, the data a little bit, everything is about new acquisition, new acquisition. Of course. And, and not about focusing on the customers that we have. Um they're in the in five years. First of all, ten percent of their budgets are going to social media. What the heck does that mean? Like, I don't know what that means. Oh, I definitely have a thought on. Okay, that, well, yeah. you, I'm going to leave that for you because I'm going to let you okay. take that. But I, but by the way, whatever their ten percent they're spending on social media, it's doubling to twenty percent in five years. So whatever that is, is going to double over over the next five years. And then this was I thought uh, particular to content marketing, which is the challenge. of these chief marketing officers and their organizations organized by product or service group and not by customer. Exactly. The reason, well, the reason why I wanted to pick that out, and you know, I mean, you've you covered this in your last book at length, which was a great book experiences. But when you do this and you're focused on product and service area, it's very challenging for the content marketing people because you you tend to then focus on what we do and what we sell and what we're all about rather than what the audience needs. So those 30% that are focused on customers' needs and, and customers' demands, it's much easier for a content creation group. So I would just say if you are a content creator in a large company, um, you, you, you are at a significant disadvantage if you're in one of those companies that are organized around product or group area. So those, those are my I wanted, those are my big areas. What, what did you, what did you, I, have? I, I had a couple and I'll just comment on the last piece. Cause what I really wanted, I, 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 I highlighted that piece to the organization by products and services rather than by customer. And I so wanted a cross tab there of success Oh yeah. Versus those two groups. I wanted to cross, I'm sure they have it. Um, but, but I want, I really wanted a cross tab to understand who, you know, the, in, from a success percentage, uh, looking at the ones that were organized by customer versus those that are organized by product and service. So the ones that I, so the social media thing, um, I, I think it's all advertising to me. I think it's, you know, the, the, Got I it. think they, yeah. they, I don't think they captured this, um, as they might have, but, but I, I believe when I look at that and I see an increase of 10% next year and by 18% over the next five years of an increase of budget, I, I definitely look at, um, the advertising and promoted content, native advertising, if you will, uh, promoted posts within social and basically, that that's the recognition 
of these CMOs that are saying social isn't what it used to be, right? That's the, that's the final swing of the pendulum that we've been talking about, that the market has been talking about forever, which is social is now a paid medium. It's not an yep. organic medium. And I think that budget moving to 20% over the next five years is really the recognition of social being a paid broadcast well, media. Platform. I totally, I totally I agree. Think they well, think it's a tax. Uh, I totally agree with that. But I think the problem is, is that in this study, they have a separate line for advertising. I know, and that's so. that's why I think if you du- if you dug into those numbers a bit, I think that's what you'd find. Because I don't think I don't know anybody that's that's going to increase their budget in organic social um, by you know by twenty percent of their budget. Um, that's thinking that they're going to you know develop a Facebook page that you know has wonderful engagement on it and stuff like that. I that's just that's crazy. Yeah, they're not buying there. likes. That's for sure. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And that, and on the feeling optimistic side, so um, only 12% I found, which was really interesting, only 12% of the, the group that they studied felt less optimistic, right? They, they felt less optimistic going into the year. Um, but interestingly, then you look at budgets going up, totally budgets, marketing budgets going up. So those of you who are in your budgeting cycle right now, that, you know, b- average the budgets are going up by about 8%, it looks like. But interestingly, not in advertising. And so they're not increasing budgets to advertising, but they are increasing budgets to social media, which tells you that where the money is going is more paid, but the the paid money is just shifting. It's shifting out of basically banner ads and digital um, display um, and, uh, and, and moving and moving slightly into paid social, which I think is, you know, I think that's aligns with, um, other things that we've seen, uh, as well on the optimism side. The other thing I would point out, which I think is fascinating, um, is, you know, I was doing some research for, for the book, um, on this idea of where marketers are feeling optimistic and where they're not feeling optimistic. And there's a couple of other studies that are out there that actually track this idea um, of optimism. Now, I will tell you the other study that I looked at that for, for the research in the book, the reason for the optimism, you know, what was the, you know, they actually asked, what's the reason that you're so optimistic? And it was because the promise of technology was going to help sort of save everything they were doing. And in fact, when you looked at the other categories, like, are, do we have the right messaging for our customers? Are we getting customer-centric? Are we actually organizing our teams the right way? Those um, were actually much less. Um, and it was an AMA study, by the way. This is, an, this is another AMA study that, that looks at this. Um, it said, basically, all of those were decreases in optimism for the next year, for 2017 and 2018. But everything was outweighed by this, the, the, the real optimism that they had around the idea of technology and how that was going to save, <clears throat> save their bacon, basically. And I think, I think that's misguided. I think that's I, – I don't disagree with that. I think it's absolutely there. But I think that's where there's a big disconnect right now is that so many marketing departments that I talk to are, are still chasing this dream of technology that's going to save their bacon – and it's they're going to be disappointed. Well, they're, they're, the, the the key point, even though I didn't find it very interesting, but was that this spend on technology and marketing analytics goes from four point six to twenty two percent in five years. That's exactly. That right. is, I mean, that they're looking. That is a story. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, that's yeah. That's twenty two percent of the marketing budget spent on analytics and tech. I mean, that's right. Whew, 
that's just saying that we don't know what we're doing. Basically, the same is, 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 and that, by the way, is the same thing that has come through in a couple of other studies that I've looked at, which is there is so much focus now on this ROI and metrics and analytics and getting that right. And the, the, you know, and the promise of the tools and all that stuff. And this isn't anything different than the last 17 years, by the way, of what we've been doing in, um, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in, in marketing. The, the, the difference is, is that if you expect that there's going to be some magical tool that's going to bring all this stuff together and save you from your human processes, you're wrong. It's just it's the, the technology is is and has been good enough for a long time to track what we need to track. Um, it, it's just that what we're looking for isn't there, which is how do you actually start attributing value, right? You know, we, we, we can, we can drive vanity metrics and KPIs all day long, but in order to drive value, we've got to actually get in front of people and talk about attribution and where marketing is making an impact and how that's really happening with people. And that's the part of the analytics process that is so sadly missing from most businesses today is the human part of that, is the human attribution part of how marketing and the art of marketing is actually having an impact on the business. Well, that's it, right? I mean, I think we continually want to make marketing uh, a majority science. Science, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, And unfortunately, it's art and science. It just is. It's if it equal. was, if it was, yeah, if it was all science, uh, we'd have it figured out by now. Uh, but we do. That's we right. And we do not. We, <laughs> we do not. We most certainly do not. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of somebody who does have it figured out, we have a new sponsor to talk about. Oh, we do. It's so nice. I love having new sponsors. Um, yeah. Our new sponsor uh, this week is Parsley. Uh, and parsley, I love parsley. The, I love putting it on like turkey. See, it's, it's really the, good on. Like, I knew you oh, were gonna. I knew you're gonna do. It's that. not that. It's it's, it's not that part. It's a different it's the parsley. company, Just, not the herb or I herb. See. Okay, All right. yeah, it's not. Okay, so so here's uh, okay. they got a little little uh, promotion here. I'm gonna read it. Is that okay? Can I read it? Are you? Uh, are please you done? do. Okay, please um, do. Here we go <laughs> with with content creation and promotion comes a lot of data. We just talked about this. If you have a digital audience, there's a good chance that you have trouble connecting the information your data provides with a way to use it to improve your content strategy. Ain't that, oh my God, is that not the truth? But there it is. our friends here say, don't worry, you're not alone. And that's true as well. Parsley, again, the company, not the herb, has researched the state of content analytics with a survey of publishers, brands, anyone that creates content, And the report they produced on the findings reveals what metrics the industry considers most useful, the siloed state of brand and publisher offices when it comes to data access, and how their analytics end up impacting the content they create. So it's a great little report. You can download it now at cmi.media slash pnr175. That's cmi.media slash pnr175. PNR 175 to get this amazing data analytics, content analytics report and survey. I love research reports. So when we have sponsors on and they do research reports, I simply love them and devour this stuff. So please support our sponsor. Thanks for Parsley for, uh, for coming to the table and sponsoring this little Absolutely. show at 175. It's a very special episode that they're sponsoring. And uh, we certainly appreciate episode. it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a it's a it's an added spice, if you will, to the show. An urban spice. 
that parsley has added. Although there's to not a lot of here. it's it's not overbearing, as you know, parsley is not an overbearing it's spice. Sometimes no, it's, it's a very negligible. lovely. It adds it adds a really good tang to a salad too. Just if just oh, that's, anyway, that's super nice. Yeah. yeah. Good. There you good, go. Good, good. There you are. All right. Uh, so now, folks, it is time for your favorite part of the show. It is our rants and rave section. When Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that makes us feel, oh, you like we've succeeded as fast as you could possibly think, or that we've fallen flat on our face. Um, and so uh, let's see. Joe goes first because shock of all shocks, he has this old marketing this, this week. This is unbelievable. See, all I do yeah. all the special episodes. So this, that's right. <laughs> so that's I'll right. take two hundred. All the you have the next twenty four, yes. my friend. Um, <laughs> so I have two two quick uh, two quick raves. The one thing I just wanted to mention, and my son Adam brought this to my attention. He thinks this is the greatest invention ever, and Netflix came up with this. I don't know if you heard about this, but basically, if you're on a program, you're watching something on Netflix. And the opening comes up, like the you know the opening uh, music and uh, the credits and all that stuff for for any type of a movie or uh, a Netflix show or a thirty minute sitcom or whatever. They now have a forward through opening button. So if you're binge watching, you can actually click the forward through opening. Did you know this? Did you know this? I did know this. Yes, see, I, I did know, know this. this. This is a thing now. Okay, yeah. so I didn't know this. Didn't know this. He, he actually stopped watching what he was watching and said, Dad, I have to show you the greatest invention ever. So this to him, this is the greatest invention ever. Forget the cotton gin or electricity. <laughs> it's this little button that, that Netflix created. <laughs> Put this forward. There's a moment, folks. I just, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out. The second thing I just wanted to, to comment on a little bit. So, have you, do you know the uh, the actor and comedian Jared Carmichael? Have you heard of Jared Carmichael I, before? I do. Okay. Yes, I, I have. Really heard funny comedian. Yes. He's got yes, an HBO special comedian. out now. Yeah. Um, he. Uh, he has been in the movie Neighbors, and uh, he's been, yep. he's going to be in the new Transformers movie. Anyways. So I was listening to a podcast that he was guest uh, guesting on, and I didn't know this. He eats scrambled eggs with blueberries and either almonds or walnuts every day for breakfast. Every day. And I love the whole take. He basically you know, why does he do this? Because he, he, he says it's one less thing to think about. He likes it. Don't get him wrong. But it's one less thing to think about. He just says the same thing every day. But, you know, sometimes he mixes in those walnuts, but that's as creative as it gets. And, of course, when I heard this, I thought about, you know, everyone knows that Steve Jobs wore this exact same wardrobe every day, which, you know, he was quickly followed by, you know, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. And if, and I don't know, you know this, but a lot of our listeners may not know about it. Uh, you know, while many speakers I know spend countless hours figuring out their keynote wardrobe, you know, mine takes a couple seconds because I wear the exact same uh, kind of jacket and jeans every time. I have multiple, you know, just pick the one on the top. I have I have six shirts and pocket square combinations and, and shoe combinations. And, uh, and when I pack for a trip, it takes no time at all, no brain cells to figure this out because it's exactly, you know, I know exactly what I'm doing every time. So I, I wanted to bring that out because... This has helped me, and I know it's helped Jared Carmichael, and it helped Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg, and I think a lot of marketers uh, might want to look at this. And I've noticed that more and more of these successful marketers create a streamlined process in, in one area so that they can be super creative in another area. So they look for areas that are outside the creative process that at the same time help them to be more efficient. So this, you know, this is exactly why we focus on things like workflow. 
And no one is creating better storytelling through workflow. No one is creating the next viral video (laughs) or podcast hit through workflow. Our goal is to be as efficient as possible with our workflow so that we can expend our energy for creative storytelling. But I think that, uh, unfortunately, most marketers don't do this. They, they're they not deliberate, I think, in finding areas of efficiency, at least more than normal. I think it's our responsibility to do that. So every communication specialist on the planet should be searching for some area, multiple areas of their life that can be s- simplified. Things where the brain doesn't have to be used at all and where we can take that energy and put that into ideas and thoughts that can truly make a difference in either our lives, our work lives, our personal lives, or in the lives of others. So I would just, you know, when I heard this from Jared, I just wanted to compel uh, more people to look at that. It's certainly helped me in, in the last 10 years doing that with my wardrobe. And of course, it it, uh, it didn't seem to hurt uh, Mr. Jobs or Mr. Zuckerberg at all. So I just think it's an important thing to look for. And I think a lot of marketers and communication specialists don't necessarily look for how they can simplify certain areas of their life so that their creative life can take on a new form. So I love that. I absolutely adore that. I, you know, I mean, it's something I do as well with as much as I travel, I have, you know, I have multiples of outfits that I wear. Um, and basically it's the same one every time. Right. You know, and that is, and, and to your point, there's a certain level of a quote unquote brand aspect to that Mm -hmm. as well. But more importantly, it's the, I don't, I know I, I'm going to be comfortable, right? I know exactly. I don't even have to think about it, but here's, and I think it's an important part of what you said. There is an aspect of that, of getting the work done, right? You actually have to do the work to find the pattern to, you know, to, to automate the process. Right. And so, you know, for you, it was actually choosing, okay, I'm going to make a decision and choose these jackets, these shirts, these pocket squares, these shoes. And I'm going to, I'm actually going to go do the work and go buy six of them and go buy, you know, and put them up and, you know, and basically create the process once so that you actually had the process. So many of us, we think about that. We think about, oh, wow, it would be really great if I could just eat the same breakfast every day. But then we don't go out and buy all the eggs, right? Then we don't, you know, or the walnuts. You know, we actually just go, oh, I'm out of all walnuts. Oh, I'm going to have to make breakfast today, right? So you've got to actually do the prep work and make it a part of your routine before it actually becomes part of your routine, right? So it's, it's a great point. It's doing the work, which is important. Ab- absolutely important great point. I love that. I love that, and I and I'm and I've been I've been anticipating uh, your your rant commentary uh, all show. You haven't told me what it is, is, but I want to hear about it. So yeah, this is something that you know I have been thinking about writing a a longer piece on um, because you know, and maybe if somebody maybe somebody out there in the audience can point me to somebody, I have not been able to find it that is that is covering this in a meaningful way. Um, and it might be because the Illuminati are, you know, they're, there's, you know, are going to kill me if I write this article, um, or have killed everyone who has tried to write this article. <laughs> but I, I think there's a really interesting thing going on here that's not getting talked about. So the article that we'll link to in the show notes comes from Ad Age. And this is something that we've been talking eh, loosely about for the past, uh, well, since January when, when, um, uh, Pritchard from uh, P&G um, went, you know, and basically talked at the ANA event and talked about the sort of digital needs to grow up big keynote. And it's gotten, you know, now, I, I, now this is inside baseball. This is as inside baseball as inside baseball gets. So forgive me there for those of you who don't care a lot about this. But 
So the article that AdAge uh, wrote last week, basically the headline is, Can Big Digital Players Meet P&G's Measurement Deadline? It's Far From Certain. And they go through this article and they talk about getting into walled gardens isn't easy. And by walled gardens, of course, they mean Facebook and Google and um, Pinterest and, and Snapchat. And basically they're where, you know, the data is proprietary. Um, and that incre- and the article says that increases the odds that P&G is going to have to make good on its threat to stop spending money on these digital platforms that don't get with it with industry standard audience measurements by the year end, meaning the end of this year. Um, as they say, P&G wants digital media to get third-party audience measurement accredited by the Media Rating Council. Now, remember that name because that's going to come back here in a second, the Media Rating Council. This is something that Chief Brand Officer Mark Pritchard has been talking about at least privately since last year and publicly since January when the aforementioned keynote uh, went a little bit viral from the ANA. Now, here's the thing with that. So I've been in marketing for 30 years. And as we just talked about, you know, um, the, you know, the measurement that we've been able to provide for any level of media has always been somewhat suspect. So going all the way back to the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, the idea that we were getting television ratings that were basically setting a $100 billion industry came from one company. And and when you were advertising on radio, it came from one company, which was called Arbitron. And in television, it was Nielsen. And there was always a feeling that the measurement we were getting wasn't entirely accurate. You know, Nielsen famously, you know, would survey 2,500 television families as a means of providing a statistical relevance against 100 million television viewers. And of course, that's ridiculous. But we built a business on it. We built the entire industry of television advertising on the back of Nielsen ratings and what they were providing. And so everybody's sort of okay with Nielsen setting the market for it, because that was sort of the standard bearer of what was going to be industry um, organized standards. Well, the media uh, relations, uh, 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 the media rating council rather, has been set up since the '60s to do the same thing. Now, by the way, this is the me- membership of the media rating council is PNG Unilever. It's basically every big buyer and seller of media on the planet. You can go to their website and look at the membership and who it is, and they're all there, right? So NBC Universal and Time Times Mirror and Times Warner and 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 NBC and and Unilever and Procter and Gamble and basically every Coca Cola and all the big media buyers that are out there. So they set that up. And the interesting thing to me is as we start looking at sort of digital quote unquote growing up and the and the and the um the need for these walled gardens to start providing industry recognized things, what they're really fighting for here is for the media rating council to go in and accredit provide accreditation to these places. Google, by the way, is the only one who has stepped up and has actually started this process with the Media Rating Council. Facebook hasn't stepped up. Pinterest has said it's going to do it, but hasn't done it yet. And they're all sort of uh, of hanging around and sort of saying, well, maybe we do and maybe we don't. And I think the bigger thing that's not getting talked about here is the complete dissolve um, uh, or disruption, or whatever word you like, of the measurement platforms themselves. I think as we start to see mainstream media, and we talk, you know, we talk so much on this show, and basically around the world, there's so much content and thought leadership and talking about how the media world is dissolving, and how we look at 
you know, direct relationships with the audience and we look at ratings and we look at, um, you know, marketing and how marketing is changing. And what we're not really talking about is how all of these sort of individual silos of industry standard measurement are themselves dissolving and being disrupted. So it's like Nielsen, they're losing the television networks. CNBC, all of the cable NBC um, networks have left or are, are in the process of leaving Nielsen because it went from live ratings to, you know, week or three day ratings, you know, where they did it plus three days, then they did it plus seven days. And basically they're all leaving Nielsen because they're just getting enough data to sell sponsorships on their own. We look at the media rating council, just go look at their website and tell Tell me how current you think they look. Um, Comscore, Arbitron, all of these sort of media um, measurement companies, because of what's going on around us, are also suffering this huge disruption. And who knows if they're the, really the industry standard anymore? And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm, I, I don't know that it's a bad thing. I don't. I just. It's a thing. It's actually happening. And so, for us. To sort of, I think we're burying the lead with this Mark Pritchard thing, which is, yeah, it's fine if they, if we can, if he can convince Facebook and Pinterest and all these other big media walled gardens to go in and get audited by Ernst and Young or Deloitte and sort of comply with what the um, media rating council says says is the industry standard. But should that be the industry standard, right? You know, should, it will it and. Can it change quickly enough as the technology and everything else is changing around us to actually adopt to that? I say it's going to be really, really difficult. And and I don't know that the measurement is actually going to be any better. So it's it's a really interesting question. I don't have any answers to, but I think the idea that we're going to somehow magically come to this industry agreed upon set of metrics around the idea of digital with privacy becoming such a big thing, with data becoming such a big thing, I think is 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 tilting at windmills a bit. So anyway, that's I don't know if it's a rant or a, or a, or a commentary, but I just think it's a big story that's not getting terribly covered well. So. And it's it's something to to, to think oh, about. Oh, absolutely. I guess the and you and you, you covered this question, but is there such a thing as an industry standard anymore? Will there be? Exactly. That's that's it and probably. That's and thing, I think. Right? And well, so, I think it might. I mean, there's the odds are. I if I was if I was a betting man, I would say that there is no such thing as an indi- in industry standard as uh, these these channels can continued and the the content and everything just continues to be um uh, so personalized for each audience experience it's going to depend on the goal and what we're trying to do and we've got own properties in there and i i don't i just don't know how you do that i don't know how you and that's why it's it's interesting to me because if you because we talked about this last week about how MarTech companies have a vested interest in making sure that the web stays open and that brands continue to have an importance of strategically owned media experiences, whether it's their website or blogs or digital magazines or apps or whatever. There's a vested interest in that to make sure that the world doesn't go swing all the way over to basically, yeah, the web is Facebook and Pinterest and Snapchat and and that's kind of it. Um, because otherwise you're, you're completely, and, and Facebook quite frankly has every reason to sort of sit this one out 
and basically see what happens. Because they've got no interest in in self-interest anyway in opening up their books to be completely transparent about the way that measurement is handled. There's, yeah. there's just – there's no reason that they should have to do that. So the longer they can delay that is the better for them. The- and, you know, and, and so that becomes a really interesting fight with – the brands that are out there that are buying access to these audiences, but themselves are also starting to compete for the, those audiences and having direct relationships with those people because that puts you immediately at odds with the industry standards people who are trying to become have people become more transparent and, quite frankly, don't have a vested interest in you having a website. They have more of a vetted interest in making sure that Facebook is providing good data so that you spend more money and yeah. so on and so forth. Well, that's the thing. The only reason that Facebook would would uh, be part of this industry standard conversation is if they were struggling in some way, because that's why exactly. you do it. But they're not struggling, that's and they're right. not going to anytime that's soon. Right. So they're never going to do it. So that's right. And Google's doing it because of double double click, right? Do, you know, Google has yep. an ad network that they that has been industry compliant for a long time called Double Click, um, and Facebook has um, I'm forgetting the name of it off the top of my head, but it, but they have they bought that um, Sonar or Radar or something I can't uh, blanking on the name, but they have an ad network as well, which has eh, sort of you know on the but it's been you know they've changed it so much that it may not be compliant anymore, and so. There's a, it's, it's, it's an interesting story that I can't find anybody covering in any depth, and I just thought it was an interesting idea. It is. And it, Somebody and needs to, to write a blog to, post about yeah. it, man. Yeah, it's a, it's a big one. It's a big one. Anyway, so we have a this old marketing to talk about. We do. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say that it's a little bit outside the scope of our normal this old marketing, but I think that... Uh, everyone will forgive well, me. Well, it is a special episode. It is a special episode, but I think everyone will, will forgive me because, honestly, I was interested in this. And if I'm interested, I know there's at least one other person in our audience that would think <laughs> this is interesting. So, uh, of course, this is uh, March Madness time where 64 or 68 teams, depending on how you look at it, come together and they play for that glory of winning uh, March Madness, if you will. Do you have a bracket? Robert, do you do brackets? I do not have okay. a bracket. I don't I, – no. They're, I am bracketless. You're bracketless. Yeah. I do a few every year. I love it. I watched a lot of the games yesterday. I love watching college basketball. And the games have been incredible so far, as they normally are. But I was thinking as I was watching the game, one of the games yesterday, I'm like, how did March Madness come about? Like, what is the history behind March Madness? So it's just super interesting to me. So as I'm doing some research – I realized that the term March Madness actually has nothing to do, started nothing to do with college. It actually started in high school. So basically, the term March Madness was born in the great state of Illinois. The annual tournament of high school boys, high school boys basketball teams, sponsored by the Illinois High School Association, grew from a small invitational affair in 1908 to a statewide institution with over 900 schools competing by the late 1930s. A field of teams known as the Sweet 16 routinely drew sellout crowds to the University of Illinois' uh, Huff Gymnasium. In a time before television, before the college game became popular with the average fan, before professional leagues had established a foothold in the nation's large cities, basketball fever had already reached epidemic proportions in Illinois high school basketball. So then that takes us to, like, how does it get the name March Madness? So here's the history behind that. 
Henry V. Porter, assistant executive secretary of the Illinois High School Association, was so impressed by the phenomena that was happening in high school basketball that he wrote an essay to commemorate the fact, and he entitled it March Madness. It first appeared in the Illinois Interscholastic, which is AIHSA's magazine. So here's how you could sort of get a little bit, <laughs> a little bit of this little marketing in it. <laughs> right. Okay. First appeared in 1939. The term struck a chord with newspaper folks all across uh, Illinois and then beyond who used it um, throughout the pages. So anytime after 1939 they would talk about this tournament, they would call it March Madness because of that essay written in IHSA's magazine. And then it just took off from the 40s and 50s. It was always March Madness. Now, so that's how it happened. And so that's how March Madness as a term uh, was born. Now, what happened is in the 80s, I think it was a CBS broadcaster termed the NCAA tournament March Madness. That was the first time. Now, this happening set off a whole slew of legal battles. So I had to go into all these legal documents and try to figure this thing out. So I'm on uh, I'm on a lawyer's site here, which is Baker <laughs> Baker Bots site where we were trying to figure out the trade. We do the hard work so yeah, you don't well, have to. It's folks. so yeah. some some trying to figure out. So so the IHSA actually trademarked the term March Madness. But then when the NCAA heard this uh, announcer use it in the 80s for CBS, they NCAA just ran with it and took it. And basically what happened is is that IHSA um, on all their legal battles were struck down because they uh, the NCAA said it was more of a generic term and that the college game was different from the high school game and on and on and on. Well, long story short, let me go to... Here we go. February 29, 2000, the IHSA and the NCAA pooled their trade and service mark resources around March Madness and formed a limited liability company named March Madness Athletic Association, MMAA. And pursuant to the MMAA agreement, the IHSA and NCAA assigned all rights in the mark to MMAA, and then basically they now jointly get revenues because, as you know, we can probably not even say March Madness on this podcast. We're probably going to be sued for just talking about <laughs> it on this program. Like because anytime right. somebody mentions March Madness, if you'll notice that in articles on other sites that aren't affi- affiliated with the NCAA tournament, they don't use, use March Madness because that is a trademark term. So anyways, sure. I just thought that this was super interesting, that it never originated from college. It was high school. And good, good to the folks at IHSA uh, that they finally fought through it, and they got the they they're probably making a lot of money off of the uh, the rights. Well, here's so here's yeah so here's my take. Okay, is they created a content brand that found that found its traction in a place that they probably least expected it to find, and then they monetized it. So they monetized it. I mean, they have now successfully monetized the content brand that they created, which is see. You know, I knew you would. Fantastic. I knew you'd bring it back home for us. I <laughs> knew you would. This is maybe now. Yeah. Now I didn't think it was relevant. Now it's our most relevant. Of, <laughs> it may be the most relevant one we've ever. So, anyways, done. well, I'll there put the go. links in the show notes. I've got a link to the history of March Madness from the Illinois High School Association, and then I've got the lawyer's link that I'll put that in as well for those uh, interested. But that's our This Old Marketing of the Week. Very relevant since it is March Madness time. Yep, absolutely. I really, really like it. So uh, speaking of March Madness, you are 
a madman in travel this week, I suspect. I am. I'm uh, headed out today to uh, to go to uh, Las Vegas and Adobe Summit, and then I'm off to Social Media Marketing World, and then from there I'm going directly on back to Las Vegas for our own Intelligent Content Conference, which, by the way, there's still time to sign up, March 28th through 30th. It's going to be our biggest event ever. We'd love to see you there, and I know I'll see you there. Are you traveling before that, I am. I am. I am doing a very, very one uh, quick one day up to uh, Oakland uh, on Wednesday, but it's literally just for the day. So I will be doing that uh, on Wednesday. But other than that, no, I am heads down preparing for the, all of next week for intelligent content. I am preparing my workshop, preparing my keynote, studying all things Fran Leibowitz, um, and uh, really just trying to get as prepped as I can possibly be. Um, you know, it's funny because you know you and I often talk, you know, when we're standing in the halls of a conference, you know, whether it's content marketing world or intelligent content, people come up and go, wow, you know, this is, you guys must be working really hard. And then you and I always have the same response. It's like, no, this is the easy part. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's the hours and days and weeks and months of preparation. That's the hard part. Actually doing the show is once you get you on know, site, part yeah. of the fun. Absolutely. Yeah, like great. doing the agenda planning yeah. that we took a lot of time doing the agenda planning. And once That's you get right. on site, That's it's just, right. yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm looking forward to seeing everybody and seeing you, of course, and uh, yeah. So it's going to be a good rock week. and roll. It's be a good Absolutely. Week, yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose. We are signing off. And if you like this episode number 175, that special episode, won't you leave us a kind review on iTunes? And if you haven't yet, do consider subscribing on that iTunes or Stitcher.com or your favorite podcatcher. And when you leave us a review or when you subscribe, let us know. Hashtag us up at this old marketing if you would. We'd love Love to thank you personally for that. And also, story ideas, story ideas, of course, story ideas. Hashtag us up on Twitter at This Old Marketing. Give us those story ideas, the examples of This Old Marketing. We'd love to hear them. And of course, you can also send an email if you love that little platform to This Old Marketing at ContentInstitute.com. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes that will be available in the show as we publish on Monday night. And of course, in the show post, in all its replete technicolor glory at thisoldmarketing.com on Saturdays. Until next week, everybody, remember, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.